Uh, in reality, of course, all of us stand on the shoulders of others, don't we? And the older we get, we see some people whom we've influenced. But if you're reflective at all, you also look back and see what people have influenced you. And we become part of a long chain where there is a need for expressing a lot of gratitude to God for the privilege of being part of that chain. Let me begin by reading Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, and then I'll pray. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. If you have a Bible with you or an iPhone, Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37. Now, I come from a tradition where after Scripture is read, whoever's reading the Scripture often says, this is the word of the Lord. And the whole congregation replies, thanks be to God. So can we try that today? I know I'm the visitor, but I can get away with it one Sunday can. So after I say, this is the word of the Lord, you will say, thanks be to God. All right. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So, too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. I haven't field tested the theory, but I suspect that this is the best known, or at very least one of the best known of all the parables Jesus ever told. But I suspect that most people who know of this parable don't know the whole passage that I just read. They just know verses 30 to 35. That is the little bit where Jesus is telling the story. That's the actual parable itself. The whole context is often overlooked. But you know, my dad was a pastor, and he kept trying to tell us a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. So it's easy to distort Scripture by taking something out of its context. 
the, the question is, what does this parable mean when you lock it down into this immediate context and then into the whole book of Luke? What, what's going on in this parable? Because if you take the story out of its context, then it can mean a lot of different things. There are a lot of people who think the parable of the Good Samaritan means something like this. This shows, they say, that the way you get to God, the way you get to eternal life, is by being nice to your neighbor. That's it. Now, I'm sure it's important to be nice to your neighbor. In fact, we'll see that this passage says something about that in due course. But at the very least, if that's what this passage is saying, you have to ask yourself the question, what are the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about? And you immediately discover that all four of them have one plot line heading to the cross where Jesus dies on the cross to pay for sin. If, in fact, the way you're accepted before God finally is not because of what Jesus has done, but because you've been nice to your neighbor, then quite frankly, Jesus wasted his time, thank you, and suffered a whole lot for nothing. In other words, the whole message of the Christian gospel somehow gets eviscerated. So there has to be some sort of better integration than that. What I want to do, therefore, this morning is run through this section that I've just read with you so that you can see the flow for yourself quite clearly. And then we'll open the lens up a bit and draw in material from surrounding lines from Luke so that you can see it's part of a theme. It's not just dropped in here. And then we'll draw some practical applications for our own lives. So begin with the parable itself in its immediate context. Verses 25 to 37, which I've just read, are structured as two matching dialogues. In each case, the lawyer asks a question, then Jesus responds with his own question, without answering the lawyer, except by his own question, then the lawyer answers Jesus' question, and only then does Jesus answer the lawyer. Take a look. Verse 25, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, not with an answer, but with what is written in the law. How do you read it? Jesus asks his question. Then he answers Jesus' question, verse 27, with two quotations from Scripture. And then Jesus responds, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the man isn't satisfied by what Jesus has said. So you get the second dialogue. It's kicked off by the lawyer's question again. Verse 29, he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus is going to reply with his own question. But in order to ask his question, he's got to tell a story. What we call the parable of the Good Samaritan is, in fact, a setup for Jesus' question. He tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, and then at the end of it, he asks his question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And then the expert in the law replied, to Jesus' question, the one who had mercy on him, and only then does Jesus answer. So you see how the thing is put together? In other words, what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan is, in fact, a setup for one of Jesus' questions. Now, let's come at it a little more slowly. An expert in the law, we think lawyer. But, of course, the law in question at the time was the law of Moses. So you must think lawyer-theologian. Under the reigning superpower of the day that is the Roman Empire, most regions had fairly autonomous government. 
And so the Jews rule themselves, apart from in capital offense matters and, and imperial matters and so forth. And the law under which they rule themselves was what we call the Old Testament, especially the books of Moses. So he was an expert in the law of God, which made him not simply a lawyer in our terms, but a theologian. And we are told he stood up to ask a question. Now, in those days, teachers sat, and so did their students. But if a student had a question to ask, then the student stood up as a mark of respect and, and asked the question and then sat down. In fact, he often stood until the answer was given. Sounds very alien to the way we do things today. Um, imagine a student at Berkeley standing up to ask a question as a mark of respect uh, to, to, to a teacher. It's, it's probably not happening every day. Um, on the other hand, I travel enough that I discover there are different uh, cultures in this, in this respect. Um, I remember after I turned 60, I was in China for something or other, and I was introduced to this substantial crowd as having just turned 60. I can't imagine anywhere in the Western world where I would be introduced to someone who has just turned 60. I mean, what they were saying, of course, is this Carson chap may finally be worth listening to. He's 60. Did you, did you see? The older you get, the better off you are. I mean, I can hardly wait till I'm 70 and go back to China. I mean, it's getting better. And, and so, so the signals of respect really depend a great deal on, on culture. But in this case, we're told explicitly, he stood up to test Jesus. In other words, he, he was standing up not as a mark of respect at all. It was just a front. Oh, we've all had students, those of us who teach, who never ask a question to find out something, but just to show off. But this is worse than that. This is not just showing off. It's actually to test Jesus. The, the, the language suggests trying to bring him down a peg. Uh, this became a, an habitual feature with his opponents. In the same gospel, 2020, we read, Cleeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So, in other words, there were a lot of people listening in who asked him questions, not because they really wanted wise answers, but because they were trying to trip him up. And the question he asks is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's an interesting question. Jews commonly spoke of inheriting eternal life. But when you throw in what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a strange question. It's, it's, it's odd. What must you do to inherit anything? Answer, get born into the right family. Do you see, which, which isn't going to fit here. So this already presupposes that, metaphors aside, the way you get eternal life is by doing stuff. If you do enough of the right things, you will gain eternal life. That's what's presupposed behind the whole thing. But because the question is just a wee bit bizarre, right on the face of it, Jesus, instead of answering, responds with his own question. Now, another former student of mine, not the illustrious Andrew Hoffman, but another chap called uh, Randy Newman, he, uh, he wrote a book a few years ago called Questioning Evangelism. Now, in this book, he was not questioning evangelism, but showing how questions could be used in evangelism. And he begins by working through all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and identifying each place where when Jesus is asked a question, he responds not with an answer but with his own question. And then he analyzes them. Why does Jesus do that? Why doesn't he answer? Sometimes he gives answers. Why doesn't he give answers here? Why does he give questions here? 
And from this, he begins to infer when questions might be the best way of proceeding, questioning evangelism. So, for example, supposing somebody comes to you and says, oh, surely you don't believe that everybody who doesn't trust in Jesus goes to hell, do you? Now, let's presuppose you're a knowledgeable Christian. How do you respond to that? Well, I would like to begin by uh, constructing in your mind a real definition of holiness. One should really begin there. Well, that might be true, but you've just lost the debate right right there. How do you start when when there's a sort of an attack question? Randy suggests you start with another question. Well, surely you don't think that nobody ever goes to hell, do you? And he says, any time he's used that question back, the answer always returns, well, I suppose somebody, Hitler maybe. Which then leads to the next question, well, what do you think the criteria should be for who should go to hell? And suddenly you've got an actual conversation going instead of just who's a bigger smart mouth than the next person. Do you you see? One of the things that a good question back can do is slow down the pace, stop the one-upmanship, and get some thoughtful response going. Do you see? So that's what Jesus does here. He says, uh, what is written in the Scripture? What is written in the law? How do you read it? What's what's the answer to the question as you've raised it? How how, how do you think you, you inherit eternal life? What do you do to inherit eternal life? And the man replies, still thinking that, strangely, inheritance might be payment for services rendered, which is a very strange notion. But but he replies now with a quotation. He answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. You have to do that. And love your neighbor as yourself. So he's taken a quotation from Deuteronomy 6 and from Leviticus 19. Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus gives these same two quotations in another context. So, if you read your Bible regularly, you'll remember that Jesus quoted exactly these two verses in another context when a different lawyer asked a different question. We're returning to the fact that things mean slightly different things depending on the context. If you want to look it up sometime at your leisure, when you get home this afternoon, it's Mark chapter 12, verses 28 and following. There, there's another lawyer who asks Jesus the question, good master, he says, what is the most important commandment in the law? That's a different question than this one. What is the most important commandment in the law? And Jesus says, the most important, the first one is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Deuteronomy 6. And the second, he says, I'll throw that one in for free. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus does not answer the question, how do you inherit eternal life? He does not say, the way you get eternal life, the way you get accepted by God is by loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and and loving your neighbor as yourself. He he, he doesn't say that. His framework, when he gives these two responses, is really quite different. What's the most important? Why is it the most important? Who cares? Well, you need to see what's going on. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is in a context where the ancient Israelites, around the time of Moses, a millennium and a half before Jesus, just about, they're in the context of polytheistic paganism all around them. 
In polytheistic paganism, when there are lots and lots of gods, you can't possibly give all of your allegiance to one god. You can't do it. Or supposing you live in the first century and you're a decent, self-respecting Roman pagan. Then if you want to make a sea voyage, you want to offer a sacrifice to Neptune, the god of the sea. And, And then maybe you're taking a sea voyage to Rome where you have to address the Roman Senate. And now you're going to have to give a speech. So you want to offer a sacrifice to the god of communication, which is Hermes in the Greek world or Mercury in the Latin world. And then meanwhile, your wife's at home uh, about to have a baby, and you, you, you want some sort of fertility god to bless that one. And, or, or maybe you're not married, and, and, and you're beginning to fall in love, so you want Venus to get on side to make sure things work out all right. And in no case can you give all of your devotion to any one of these gods, because all of these gods have their own little domains, do you see? But supposing there's only one god. That's why in the context of Deuteronomy 6, the passage begins... It begins with what Jews today call the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Did did you see? This first commandment is predicated on monotheism. The commandment makes no sense unless you've already bought into monotheism. But it's more than that. It's the first commandment because it's the commandment you always break if you break any other. If we always loved God perfectly with heart and soul and mind and strength, we would never commit any other sin. So it's the commandment we always break when we lust or hate or gossip or lie or cheat or murder or rape or steal. We're always breaking the first one, always. And in fact, in one sense, that is what makes sin, sin. Do you remember the pretty horrible account of David in the Old Testament? David has become king, and he seduces a young woman next door who's married, if you please, to one of his foot soldiers. While he's off at the front fighting one of David's wars, the king himself is seducing his wife. He impregnates her. After long, complicated developments in which he thinks he might just about get out of it, he realizes he he can't get out of this one. So he arranges for the young man to be killed in a skirmish at the front. His platoon is charged with some sort of advance, and everybody else in the platoon gets some sort of secret signal to withdraw at the appropriate moment, but not the young man in question, a chap by the name of Uriah. So the inevitable happens. The platoon attacks, then they get a signal to withdraw, He doesn't withdraw, he stays at the front, gets killed. So now, David is guilty of both adultery and murder. The prophet Nathan confronts David, and eventually David is brought to real contrition and brokenness, to to self-loathing, a sense of real guilt. And eventually, he pours out his heart before God in what is called Psalm 51 in our Bibles. You can read Psalm 51 for yourself. And amongst the interesting things that he says as he addresses God in this context is, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And you want to say, David, come on. That can't be right. You've sinned against the young woman. You seduced her. You certainly sinned against her husband. You had him bumped off. You sinned against the military high command. You corrupted them. You sinned against your own family. You betrayed them. 
You sinned against virtually all the people in the land. You're the chief magistrate. You're supposed to uphold the standards of integrity. And you've compromised everything. Is there anybody that you haven't sinned against? And you have the cheek to say, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. But you know, at another level, that's exactly the truth. Because what makes sin so exceedingly sinful? What makes it so heinous? What makes it so ugly? Is that God, when we sin, is always the most offended party. Because we've always broken the first commandment to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. The betrayal is in his direction first. If you cheat on your income tax next April the 15th, God is the most offended party. If you cheat on your spouse, God is the most offended party. If you nurture bitterness, God is the most offended party. You're full of arrogance, God is the most offended party. You nurture covetousness and enviousness, God is the most offended party. So there's a profound sense in which Christians begin to look at their own hearts over against God instead of just the social dynamics. The social dynamics are important. There needs to be repentance and, and, and restoration on that front too. But more important than that, from the Bible's point of view, is the vertical dimension. And there you find Christians saying, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And then the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, not to love your neighbor as yourself, is already a reflection of human lostness. We think we're the center of the universe. We, we don't go around saying, I'm at the center of the universe. But nevertheless, it's the way we think. It's, it's the way we act, isn't it? I hold up a picture of your university graduating class and say, here's a photograph of everybody who graduated in your class. Well, isn't that terrific? Whose face do you look up first? Or supposing you have a really good knockdown drag him out argument. A 10-year one, you know? A one in 10-year one? A, a really nasty piece of argumentation with somebody or other. And you go away and you're steaming and you're thinking deep down in yourself what you could have said, what you should have said, what you would have said if you had only thought of it fast enough. And you replay the whole thing over in your mind. Who wins? I've lost many arguments in my time. I've never lost a rerun. <laughs> because God help me, I, I'm too quick to break the second commandment. Do, 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 do you see? It's, it's horrendous. It's a measure of our lostness. So that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about what is most important. The first commandment is to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. That defines God for you. It defines the nature of idolatry. It defines the nature of sin. And the second commandment does the same sort of thing. Do you see? Do, do you see? But this chap has quoted those same two texts and spun them in a very different direction. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And when Jesus asks him the question, what you must do to inherit eternal life, he responds with these two quotations. Do you want to say that's what you have to do to inherit eternal life? If that's what you have to do to inherit eternal life, how many in this room are going to inherit eternal life? Really, to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength, do you always do that? And to love your neighbor as yourself? So Jesus responds, and he says, and at first, it's a bit staggering. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. 
Now, if you always read texts with a sober-sided lack of humor, I think you will misinterpret this passage pretty badly. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? You can prove it. What he's saying is, indeed, anyone who meets such a standard does not need grace. You want to do something to inherit eternal life? You're right. That's what you've got to do. Go ahead. Be my guest. You've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But it takes an incredible degree of pretentiousness to think that that is going to get you in. Because we can all remember all the times when we haven't done it. When we're not even close. In fact, in our lostness, even when we do do something really nice for a neighbor, then it's not long before we're patting ourselves on the back for having done something nice for the neighbor. You know? And so what starts off as as really trying to love your neighbor can become an excuse for a certain kind of self-justification all over again. And the man knows it. The man knows that that's what Jesus is saying. That's why he responds as he does in the next verse. I'm not reading something into the text. It's right there in front of you. But he wanted to justify himself. He knew that he had lost that round big time. So now he's trying to justify his position a little bit. Do you see? So we'll quibble on what neighbor means. And now we start off with the second dialogue. Now, before we proceed to the second dialogue, focus on this expression, he wanted to justify himself. Self-justification is one of the minor themes in Luke's gospel that keeps recurring. And once you see it, this whole passage becomes a little clearer again. For those of you who have been Christians quite some time now, what does the doctrine of justification mean? It's especially expounded by Paul, but sometimes with other words. It's found right through the Bible, both Testaments. Justification is that act by which God declares just those who are, in fact, guilty sinners. God justifies the ungodly. That's an exact quotation from Romans 4. God justifies the ungodly. He declares them just. But nevertheless, he remains just when he does so because he doesn't do so on the basis of their righteousness. They're not righteous. They're ungodly. God justifies the ungodly on the basis of what God's Son has done by paying their guilt off for them, by dying their death, by taking their penalty. That's what the cross is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. God justifies the ungodly on the basis of what Christ Jesus has done. That's what justification is. What's the opposite of that? Well, it depends on which axis you're looking, but on one axis, the opposite of God justifying the ungodly, it's us justifying ourselves. It's self justification. And that's really ugly. Do you have any idea how many sins we commit are finally reflective of one aspect or another of self-justification? You find it even in the story of the fall in Genesis 3. Adam says, not my fault, it's the woman you gave me. Self-justification. Not the last husband who blamed his wife. But she's no better, you know. It's not my fault, it's the devil. You know, the devil made me do it. Self-justification, do you see? Refusing to take responsibility. 
And, and you tell a story of what happened, whether it's a fishing trip or something else, and you, you re recount what happened, or maybe in a church meeting or, or a business meeting or in the department at university, and, and you, retell, you, you retell what happened in some sort of little scrap or some little skirmish that came up, and as you retell the story, you spin it in just such a way that you come out a little better than anybody else thought you did at that skirmish. Self-justification. This is a big theme in this gospel. Take a look, for example, at uh, Luke chapter 16. Jesus, in verse 13 of 16, 16, 13, is talking about money. And he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's, 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 it's not that money is intrinsically bad, but if push comes to shove and your God is, in fact, money, it's, it's idolatrous. You can't serve both God and money. And he could have said, of course, you can't serve both God and sex, or you can't serve both God and power. You can't serve both God and any, anything else. All of those things may be intrinsically good things in their proper place, but as soon as they displace God, you've got idolatry, don't you see? That's what he says, talking about money. And then we're told, 1614, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. That is, they were sneering at him because most of them had quite a lot of money. And they were saying, what's this hick from up country, Galilee, doing, telling us about money? He doesn't know anything about it, you know? He doesn't, he doesn't have much money. And meanwhile, they were justifying themselves, putting themselves in the, the pecking order because of, of, of how much money they, they really had. Now, you know, there are a lot of ways of doing that, aren't there? You, you know how, how you're, you're, you're 17 or 18 or 19, you're driving your first car, and it's... It's, it's jalopy, you know, it's, it's really crummy. And especially if you live in the Midwest where I live, the salt guarantees that, that the car is falling apart and the termites are holding hands to hold it together. And it, it really is a bit of a rattle trap and there's rust everywhere and, 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 and so on. And then somewhere along the line, in, in the mercy of God, you've earned enough money to buy a pretty nice car. Maybe 10 years later, maybe 20 years, 25 years, well, however long it takes, now, now you're driving a nice car. And the first time you come up to a stop sign, and you look over and there's another car beside you. And it's some young dude in a jalopy. And you're trying to think holy thoughts. You're trying not to say, ha ha, be gotcha beat. You don't want to be crude or anything. But you know, when the light changes, you just accelerate a little faster than you might otherwise have accelerated to show what 330 horses look like. You know? <laughs> And so there's so many ways in which, in, in which we justify ourselves, don't we? Even in finances or, or, or home or our self-identity <coughs> is bound up on what part of town you live or, or, or whatever. It's so easy to play this game, isn't it? It's endlessly played. What does Jesus say about this? They're sneering at him. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. It's all playing a game about where you fit in the pecking order with that. You you're not looking for the justification from God. You're justifying yourselves in the, in the eyes of others. Don't you see? It's hideous. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. In other words, this doesn't say when people value really bad things, it's detestable in God's sight. But when people value even good things, when they value them so highly that they displace God, they become idols. Don't you, don't you see? And that, that becomes detestable. One more example from Luke's gospel. Elsewhere in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, we read another parable. 
to some who were confident of their own righteousness. That's self-justification. They were confident that they're pretty good guys. They're going to make it. They're on the inside track. They're doing good. They're well enough off in their merits department to get themselves into heaven. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and to give a tenth of all I get. God, I thank you that I am not as other people are. I go to Solano Christian Church. I'm in a Bible study. I've learned to tithe. I'm I'm faithful in my Bible reading. I'm not like some people in Berkeley, you know. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He, He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What does Jesus say? I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. The other man only had self-justification. Do you see? It's not that there's not even a place for thanking God. Many of us have have got converted as adults, and we look back, and and we see that our lives have changed, and there, there is a place for thanking God for this grace. But so often when we start thanking God for the grace that has changed our lives and put us on a different path, it's so easy to start thinking, and we're a little bit better than the other dudes because of it. And suddenly we've, we've slipped a notch again, haven't, haven't we? To, to thank God genuinely means that we'll still recognize that our, ourselves as poor sinners apart from the grace of God. It's a different attitude. We'll still be approaching God not on the basis of us having made it, but on the basis of God's grace as we come before him again and again and again and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Christians are never more than poor beggars telling other poor beggars where there's bread. So this theme of self-justification is a biggie. It keeps recurring in various ways in Luke's gospel, and that's what it's doing here. This man now knows that he's been got at by Jesus. This man can't live up to the standards that he himself has quoted. At the end of the day, if you think you are going to get in, apart from God's grace, Jesus is saying, go ahead. That's what you've got to do. Love God perfectly with heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Do that and you're in. No sweat, mate. And the man knows that he's condemned out of his own mouth. So he seeks to justify himself. Uh, And who is my neighbor? Sounds like a good theological comeback to me. Define your terms. And in reply then, Jesus tells the parable that we know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, first century society was pretty highly structured. Different groups could be identified by language, dress, accent. In the south of Palestine, the priests spoke Hebrew. The peasants spoke Aramaic. Along the coast, some people who were peasants still spoke ancient Phoenician. Up in Galilee, they spoke Greek and Syriac. The Roman authorities spoke Latin, and all of them wore slightly different clothes. So when you talk to somebody, you could tell by their clothes what rank they belonged to, what stratum of society, what part of the country, and then you could hear their speech too, you see? And you could say, oh, this dude's a a, a Syriac speaker from northern Galilee. You, You could tell by the way they were speaking Aramaic down in the south. But this man, we don't know anything more about him than what's here in the text, 
is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, about uh, 17 miles, hilly, rocky country, great for thieves and muggers. And somewhere along the line, he's mugged and he's robbed. In those days, clothes were expensive. That is, they represented such a big part of your disposable income that if robbers were going to take your money bag, they'd also take your clothes because that, that was a significant asset. So they bashed him into unconsciousness. He might be dead for all we know. He's lying comatose by the side of the road and absolutely starkers. He's, he's naked by the side of the road. He's, 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 he's just a piece of human trash. And along comes a priest. Now, if this man were still rest in, arrayed in priestly garments, maybe the priest would have said, well, it's a fellow priest, I'd better help him. We don't know anything about him. He's just a piece of human refuse. Besides, if he got attacked in these hills, it could be that if I stick around very long, the robbers are still here and I'm going to get attacked too. Maybe he was thinking along those lines. More importantly, he was a priest. In those days, a lot of priests worked their farms wherever they were, and then they would go up to Jerusalem for the two-week interval when they had to do their priestly tasks, and that might not come up again for many, many, many months. So if this man is going from Jerusalem to Jericho, almost certainly he's heading home. He's done his two-week stint, do you see? Now, supposing this priest, having done his two-week stint, heading home, his family's expecting him, and now he touches a dead body. According to the laws of the time, he would have to go back to the temple and go through a week of ablutions again in order to make himself ceremonially clean. He's a priest. He's got to do that. So instead, he looks around, and there's nobody there, and he doesn't want to spend another week, and it might be a bit dangerous, and he doesn't know who this character is in any case, and he passes by. And then the Levite, a kind of assistant priest, he does the same thing. And finally, along comes the Samaritan. It's hard for us to remember just how despised the Samaritans were. They were half-breeds and resented for it. They didn't believe all of what we call the Old Testament. They only believed the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So they didn't believe anything about Jerusalem or King David or the Davidic dynasty or any of that stuff. They thought that the proper place to worship God was not in Jerusalem, but in Mount Gedizim and Ebal. There in Samaria, they actually built a temple, which about two centuries earlier, the Jews had gone in and destroyed. So as a result, there was a lot of bad blood be between the two groups. John's gospel says that they have no dealings with one another. The expression literally means they wouldn't eat together even. They, they wouldn't even have a cup of coffee together. So this Samaritan shows up, despised now. He's in the Judean territory, not up in Samaria, and he's despised by all. But he looks at this man by the side of the road, and he doesn't start asking, I wonder if he's one of mine. Rather, he gets off his donkey. He sees that he's still alive. He pours into the wounds oil and wine. In those days, a common medicinal mixture. Some sort of soothing effect, maybe some mild cleansing effect. Binds up the wounds. Manages to hoist the man up in his own donkey, which means that now he himself is walking. And eventually they find an inn. And he looks over after him overnight. Now when you hear inn, you're not to think holiday inn. It would be an ordinary house with an extra room attached with some straw in it where they put some animals and they would let you stay there and maybe give you some food for a little bit of money. The man pays, the Samaritan pays two denarii, which would have covered costs for a week or two. But the extra factor is this. He says, not only 
look, look after him, but, but look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, that is absolutely critical. Because supposing this man has a, a broken leg or dislocated shoulder, maybe suffering from concussion, he needs to stay there. It's going to be a few weeks before he can travel again. And don't forget, he's got no clothes. He's been robbed. He's got no money. He doesn't have a visa card. Can't telephone somebody on his cell phone and get somebody to email him something or other or to send something on Western Telegraph. He, he can't do any of those things. And, and suppose he, he can't even begin to walk until uh, six or eight or ten weeks have passed. Who's paying for his expenses? Well, if it's the hotel that's paying for it, then at the end of the time, he owes that money. And in those days, there were no bankruptcy laws. There was no Chapter 11. There was no Chapter 13. In the Roman Empire, if you owed money and you couldn't pay it, and it was time to pay it, you had only one option. You sold yourself into slavery. In the worst cases, you sold yourself and your whole family into slavery. You couldn't escape that. So by the Samaritans saying, listen, look after him. You know me. I come this way all the time. And I promise, whatever you have to put into his getting better, I'll pay the bill. He had not only rescued him from death, he had just rescued him from slavery, regardless of the cost. And that's the story Jesus tells. And then eventually he asks his question. And the question is spectacularly shrewd. The question you see that the lawyer asked was, who is my neighbor? And he asked it in order perhaps to get out from having to serve just anybody. You'd only have to serve his neighbor. Who is my neighbor? A kind of escape hatch. But Jesus asked a different question. To whom must I be a neighbor? How do I become a neighbor? It is so penetrating. Because now the parable, the parable pictures grace responding to need. The question that the man asks is, who is my neighbor, in order that he can escape somehow under some tight enough definition of neighbor that somehow he won't have to do too much and maybe he can squeeze under that love your neighbor as yourself clause after all so long as you define neighbor tightly enough. But Jesus asks another question based on quite another picture. To whom must I be a neighbor? And the parable pictures grace, the grace of the Samaritan, responding to need to a man who can't pay back anything. How shall a lawyer respond to Jesus' question? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Wouldn't you expect him to say, mm, the Samaritan? He can't even bring himself to use the word Samaritan on his lips. He, he simply describes him functionally, uh, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now, before we think through what that means for us today, let me take just two or three minutes to draw your attention to somewhat bigger themes in the surrounding chapters. Just a couple of them. In Luke chapter 9, the immediately preceding chapter, we read, verse 51, At the as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, that is by way of the cross, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. 
That's 951. Barely a third of the way through the gospel, Jesus is already heading for Jerusalem. And in Luke's topical ordering of things, from now on, it's all the way to Jerusalem, all the way to the Passion narrative, all the way to Luke 19. And then after that, you have the, the account of Jesus' trial and death and resurrection. That, that, that's it. So that's why this section from 951 all the way to chapter 19 is sometimes called Luke's travel narrative. That is, several times in these chapters, you're told again and again and again, Jesus is heading for Jerusalem. But that means he's heading for the cross. He's heading for the cross. He's heading for the cross. This is a way that Luke has of saying, don't you understand, dear reader? Everything that happens now is under the shadow of the cross. Everything that happens now is under the shadow of the cross. Everything Jesus says, he says in the firm resolution that he's going to Jerusalem to die our death on the cross. He's going to be restored to his heavenly father, return to the glory he had with the father before the world began by means of the cross. So to pick up the parable of the Good Samaritan and take it out of its context and fail to see that it is placed in Luke's gospel on the way to the cross, under the shadow of the cross, as Jesus is going to the cross to pay for our sins and to institute the new covenant shed, that, that is sealed in the, in the shed blood of Christ. It, it is to miss how the whole gospel is put together. Do, do, do you see? But then there's a second thing to say. In Luke chapter 10, at the beginning of the chapter, parable of the Good Samaritan is in the middle. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus sends out a group of trainee disciples, 70 or 72, and they're beginning to preach and to perform miracles in Jesus' name, cast out demons and so forth. And they come back and they are ecstatic. Lord, verse 17, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus replies, I, you know, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. There's been significant defeat here. However, verse 20, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you hear that? They're rejoicing. Do you see that they've got power in ministry? They have what, what the Puritans would have called unction, anointing. They, 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 they can do some stuff that Jesus is doing. They, they are powerful in their preaching, and sometimes they actually perform miracles, and, and they come back, and they're really thrilled. It's going really nicely. But then, of course, there's always a danger of a little bit of self-justification when you go so well. And what does Jesus say? Listen. Yeah, I saw Satan fall from heaven. It was good what you were doing. That, that, that's right. That's not what you should be happy about. That's not where you should rejoice. You should be rejoicing that you yourself know God. You should be rejoicing that your name is written in heaven, sealed from before the foundation of the earth, written in heaven. That's where you should rejoice. Does the name Martin Lloyd-Jones mean anything to you? Some of you who are older, who have read quite a lot, will know the name. For others, he's now somebody in the past. David Martin Lloyd-Jones was probably the most influential preacher in the English-speaking world in the 20th century. He was minister for many years at Westminster Chapel in London. And his influence was almost past calculation. He preached regularly to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. and Tens of thousands were converted under his decades of ministry. Moreover, he helped to rejuvenate 
expository preaching again, not only in Britain but around the world. There are 75 books of his sermons still in print. And a lot of his sermons were recorded so that you can still hear them and download them for free and hear what he was like with his Welsh accent. He was a man of his times in many ways, but he was astonishingly influential. After World War II, he helped to um, rejuvenate um, the British equivalent of InterVarsity, for example, to set up Tyndale House for Biblical Research in Cambridge, and, and then to set up a Banner of Truth Trust, a, a publishing outfit, and the Westminster Assembly, which, which was a, minister, a ministerial association. And so he, he just kept on and on and on. He was like the energizer rabbit. He just kept going and going and going and doing things and more things and so on. And eventually he retired in 1961 from Westminster Chapel. Then he kept preaching on an itinerant basis and so on for many years, and then he contracted cancer. And in late 1980, he died in January 1981. In late 1980, the man who would become his biographer, Ian Murray, who is a friend of mine, he went to see him, and, and he was getting information and details for the forthcoming biography and so on. And then he said, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, oh, go ahead. How are you coping now that you're put on the shelf? You've been used to preaching to thousands. You have been published. You, 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 have, you, you have started whole movements. You have been acclaimed around the world. And now it takes all of your energy to get out of bed, put on your three-piece suit, which he kept doing, sit in a chair and edit a manuscript for an hour before he got so weak that he had to take off his three-piece suit and go, go back to bed. How, how, how are you coping with that emotionally at this stage? And the doctor said, he, everybody called him the doctor. He was a medical doctor. And the doctor said, do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. I am perfectly content. Do you see what he's saying? His existence was not self-justified even by his ministry. You can begin to justify yourselves even for doing good Christian things, having a fruitful ministry. Do you see? Whereas in point of fact, Jesus says self-justification is not the way ahead. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And if I had more time, I would show you that in the following chapters, these themes keep recurring. Now let me conclude with one or two pastoral observations. Number one, if we think of gaining eternal life, of being accepted before God, of a new heaven and a new earth, of being saved, whatever the language you choose to use, all of which is found in scripture somewhere, if we think of such things in, as, as in, inheriting eternal life, you must see that inheriting eternal life turns on Jesus and his cross. It turns on grace. It cannot be earned. This parable has to be read on the road to Jerusalem, under the shadow of the cross. And the pretentiousness of this lawyer who actually thinks that he can gain heaven this way is so appallingly bad that what Jesus can do most effectively with it is prick its pretensions. Go ahead, do this and you'll live. That's all you have to do. Just, just do it and you'll live. And even the man himself sees that he can't live up to those standards. Listen. 
We have to come to grips with the fact that if we're going to be acceptable before God at all, it's going to be by grace. We either come asking God for forgiveness, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or we shroud ourselves in self-deception, self-justification, and do not come at all. Second, so then who in this story really is the Good Samaritan? Who is the Good Samaritan? And in one sense, of course, you really have to say that the ideal Good Samaritan is Jesus. Now, let me hasten to say, that's not why Jesus told the story. Jesus did not tell the story in order to say, I'm going to tell you a story, and the key to the story is, you must understand the Good Samaritan is me. That's not why he's telling the story. But as Luke relates the story and puts it into his gospel, he can't help but see the parallels. Who is it who is despised by just about everyone, like the Samaritan, who alone comes and rescues people from death and then so pays everything that they're freed from slavery? In one sense, Jesus is the Good Samaritan. That's not the point of the story as Jesus tells the story. I keep repeating that. Yet at the same time, you cannot help but see it when you put the whole story under the shadow of the cross on the road to Jerusalem. But third, clearly Jesus expects his followers to behave as he himself does. He expects us to become good Samaritans too. For he ends up by saying, go and do likewise. The difference is this. This lawyer thought that by trying to do good deeds, he would finally do enough to somehow get him in. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you want to get in on that basis, then okay, okay, love God with heart and soul and mind and strength all the time. You do that. Love your neighbors yourself all the time. And if you don't do that, you're, you're in big trouble. But, but, but don't you see? Jesus is heading to the cross. He's on the road to Jerusalem. The answer still remains the gospel. But once you have closed with Christ, once you have become a Christian, you are expected to follow this Jesus. And that means acting as he acted. That's why the Apostle Peter, who was undoubtedly present while this story was being told, can in his first letter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, talk about the uniqueness of the cross, how he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And then he adds, he also did this, he said, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Or again, in Matthew 16, when, when Jesus starts talking clearly about how he must go to Jerusalem and, and be crucified and the third day rise again, at this point, the disciples still don't know what he's talking about, but Jesus talks about his impending death. Do you know what he says immediately after that? He says, and if any of you wants to be my disciple, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. In other words, Christians learn to become good Samaritans not because they think that by doing this they can get into heaven, but precisely because they trust the Lord Jesus who alone can get them into heaven. And they discover that salvation, which is by faith alone, never leaves faith absolutely alone. It so works out in our lives that it transforms us and makes us want to do things that we never would have done before and look at the first two commandments in entirely different ways 
even while we recognize that our hopes are in Christ, our lives are transformed by the gospel of God. Let us pray. Merciful God, we confess how frequently we take snippets of Scripture out of context and make up things that don't really make much sense. Help us to become good hearers of the Word. But not only good hearers, but those who respond in faithful obedience as well. We thank you for the grace that sent Jesus to the cross but we thank you also for the quality of his life that shows us how we too must live. Strip off from us any delusion that somehow we can gain access to your presence by trying harder. But strip off from us also any delusion that, that thinks that we can trust you without our lives being transformed. For in truth, the gospel does transform us. It not only gives us Forgiveness of sin, but the blessed Holy Spirit who enables us to do what otherwise we would not do. And grant, Lord God, if there are some here who really find all of this still very alien, but who begin to see, even now, that forgiveness comes through faith in Christ Jesus. Enable them by your Spirit, even now, where they sit, to cry with the man in the temple, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. For Jesus' sake. Amen.